At the beginning of my ninth episode, I mentioned that I had a conversation with a woman here in Connecticut who works in the media about the possibility of an adult Johnny visiting his mother in the middle of the night in March 1997, and the information that Noreen Gosh shared in her interview with former FBI special agent in charge turned private investigator Ted Gunderson, specifically the detail that Johnny had been hiding out on various Indian reservations. Well, the person I was referring to who I had this conversation with was Joan Dillon, a longtime popular on-air personality at Light 100.5 WRCH here in Farmington, Connecticut. She and I have talked quite a few times at this point on just how likely it is that an adult Johnny Gosh escaped from the pedophile rings during his adolescence and spent the next few years living on Indian reservations. The thing is, back in the 80s, Joan spent a great deal of time on a reservation, enough to know what day-to-day activity is like when you live on one, and how the different tribes interact with each other. I never knew a thing about what life was like on reservations until she began to enlighten me. And I think that's something that followers of the Johnny Gosh case overlook. Those of us who have heard that theory about hiding out on various reservations due to them being a sovereign state, because the majority of us are not educated in what that life entails, what that would take for someone, specifically a white guy, to show up one day looking for a place to lay low. So I asked Joan last week if I could come in to see her where she works at WRCH in Farmington so we could talk again, and if this time I could record our conversation. She agreed. It became even more enlightening as the talk progressed. Because understand, Joan is a mother herself. So not only does she have a first-hand perspective of reservation life, being there as a Caucasian person, she also speaks from the perspective of a parent and how if she were in Noreen's position, she would have done anything to believe that that was her son who showed up that night in 1997. But it leads her to an idea on what happened that night that I never thought of. And as far as I know, no one else has ever tried chimed in with it either. And when she said it to me, I realized that it was another distinct possibility. Today we have another sort of special episode. I will be sharing that whole conversation with you, the different ideas that we bring up as a result of that talk, and ideas on how we might be able to confirm that the reservation theory is either true or not true. This is episode 11 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. So before I get to my talk with Joan Dillon, I want to replay for you the clip of Noreen Gosh's interview with Ted Gunderson, where she talks about the night in March of 1997, when in the middle of the night, in the pitch dark, she heard a knock at her door and opened the door to two men after the one knocking claimed to be her son, Johnny. In March of the year 1997, when someone started knocking at my door in the middle of the night, and it was a consistent knock. They kept on knocking and pounding at the door. I went to the door and I lived alone and I would not have normally opened the door at that time of night. But I looked out the little security hole in the door and I could see two young men in the hallway. The hall lights were on and I could see the facial features of one of the boys and he looked like Johnny. And 
And I said, who's there? And he said, it's me, Mom, it's Johnny. So I let them in. The one young man that was with Johnny did not talk. He kept very quiet, and he would not give me his name. It was a very emotional reunion, because I had not seen Johnny for many years. But when he came in, I thought he was home to stay. I, I thought this was his return. And I said, you're going to have to have a safe place to stay. I said, L let me call somebody that can come here tonight and give us some legal advice and some help. And he said to me, I can't stay. You don't understand. It's not safe. And I said, you wouldn't be safe if I stayed. They'll kill me. And then my son went on to, to talk about the high-level pornography and prostitution drug-running group that he had been taken into. And he talked about Colonel Michael Aquino. He talked about some of the local people in Des Moines, Iowa, that he knew were involved. People across the country that were in high places politically, he mentioned. Some senators all the way to the White House. I sat there and I was shocked because I had not heard any of this. And he told me that he wanted me to get his story out. He wanted me to do something that would start to make some arrests happen so that he and the other kids that were involved could someday be free, maybe to go reunite with their families. But at this point, they had no choice but to hide out. He also explained to me that he and a couple of the other boys had stolen a car earlier, several years earlier. And that's how they got away from the actual kidnappers, the ones that actually controlled their movements on a daily basis keeping them in safe houses across the country. And that when they stole this car, they went to one of the boys' homes, and his father was a CPA in another city, a very well-respected man. They stayed there several days. And from that house, Johnny and one of the other young boys went to an Indian reservation to live. And Johnny ended up living on many Indian reservations in seclusion disguising himself, making himself look like a Native American during that period of his life. And he did that to avoid being found. He went to an Indian reservation to avoid being apprehended, if you will, by authorities because it's a sovereign state. They knew they'd be safe on an Indian reservation. He remained there until publicity again started to reach a high level nationally concerning his case. Then he left the last Indian reservation and has gone on to remain in hiding in other places of the country. During the time that he did remain on the Indian reservation, he fell into probably another form of control, another form of crime level, and many of the kids that are taken into this type of crime will not ever ask for help. They won't go to their parents. They won't go to police for help because they've been forced to commit felonies. While my son was here with me during our visit, which lasted about two and a half hours, these are many of the things that he related to me, the hows, the whys, many of the details. He did not, however, tell me the, inter the intimate details of the type of abuse that 
that he received. I knew that it was sexual, and I think that he did not want the embarrassment for himself and the hurt for me to have to hear it. At one point, he said that he was going to have to leave because he couldn't stay any longer. And as much as I hated to see him go, I knew that he had to go for his own safety. When he and the other, other young man left my home that night, I ran outside after them, and they disappeared into the night on foot. I did not see any cars they got into. I did not hear any engines start up. So I know that they had to have had a car parked some distance away and then walked to my place so that they could slip away easily without being noticed. And now here's Joan Dillon and myself in Joan's office at WRCH earlier this week. This is our whole talk with just minor edits for time. Can you yep. tell me a little bit, like, what's it, what, what, what exactly is life like on the Indian reservation? Like, what's your thought on yep. if that was, it's, if that was even a possible thing for him to do? Yeah. Um, so I think I break it into two as a podcast listener. And first and foremost, I, I felt like, okay, this is a mom. I'm a mom. She must recognize her son. Like, I would recognize my son anywhere. I don't care if he went missing when he was seven. I would know. I know the certain marks on him. I know that even if you're 40, you would have that little, you know, dent by the side of your eye that you were jumping on the couch and you hit the side of the table when you were seven. You know, yeah. you're still going to have that. So I thought, you know, it's it's got to be him. So... But my mind right away with her, with John Johnny's mother saying it was him. He said that, you know, they had gone and lived on an Indian reservation. So first, I want to believe her. She wants to believe. I think as listeners, we all want to believe that, like, oh, my God, he, he actually did make it out alive, yeah. um, even though he lived through a living hell. But then there's the side of me that says, did she question him? Did she say, okay, well, then what's your sister's middle name? What, what was our cat's name at that, you know, I know they had, I think they had like a, a mini dachshund. Yeah. Um, but, you know, okay, so, you know, what was, what did we call the, the dog for a nickname? Or what did we, you know, just something. And she didn't offer any of that, so I became skeptical. But then when she said... You know, he dyed his hair black or something to be on a reservation. I just want to say that now, today, there's more of a chance that that may be able to happen because there's so many different people of color that say, I'm Indian, I'm a Native American, whereas in, in that particular time frame, so are we talking what year, like 80s? It would, I guess it would have to be early 90s. Yeah. Because, uh, because he supposedly showed up at her door right. in March of 97. Okay. So when was I on the Indian reservation? The Indian reservations that I had gone to um, and been around Native Americans um, were from 86 to 88 and I 
spent a lot of time there because I was in college in Wisconsin, and the reservation that I went to was my, the father of my baby was a full-blooded Potawatomi. Potawatomi is a tribe that is based out of Crandon, Wisconsin, and the um, and that's the Potawatomi Reservation. It's in northern Wisconsin. So my daughter's half Native American. So I went up there, and even being with other natives, and I'm white, I stuck out like a sore thumb. And I was with people that lived on that reservation. I didn't just show up, you know, like, hey, here's this pregnant white girl, you know, and telling people, oh, I belong to this tribe. I came with other Native Americans that lived on that reservation, and it spread like wildfire. Like, there's, did you see that? And they they say, like, Chimokaman or Chimokamanque, white man or white woman it's it's you stick out like a sore thumb you're not everybody knows everybody there um it's also you know a dangerous place to be yeah uh, uh even if you know people there um and this is nothing against the native americans it's everything against the people who put them on the reservations you know you take everything away from a, a people and you dole out what you believe they can have, which is, you know, here's your little plot of land, here's your little trailer, here's or your little house or your lean-to. There were teepees, mm-hmm. you know, there's a tribal center, um, and it's not all in one area where you can see everything. Each reservation is different. This one is, you know, it's like woods and stuff, you know. Okay. Um, I just find it hard to believe that so what what would have to happen there they would escape Johnny and his friend who still goes unnamed and who was not identified as a native american and it's like so we're to believe that two guys that are running scared from like a child molester ring you know the the crazy temple of set leader you know are going to now decide like it's okay to go on a reservation where we know nobody and this entire tribe could come at us. It's just kind of biting off a lot. And especially because in my mind's eye, I see them like, you know, as I said, there's no check-in center, but like you get on the reservation and immediately it would be like, who's that? Who's that? And And it gets around. Okay. It gets, everything gets around. Okay. Let me explain a little story to you that might put something into perspective. Like in 1985 or 86, I went there and I was with a girlfriend that lived on that reservation. And we went out that night to a little, they had like, you know, a little bar there. You know, there's no... There's no civil law, right? There's no there's no cops that like patrol that area. Yeah. They have their own law. Yeah. Okay. So you're allowed to so I'm at this bar and somebody comes in and the bartender goes, Daniel, what did I tell you about coming in here? The kid looked like he was fourteen. And he goes, I have a note from my mom. 
and the bartender goes, let me see it. Like, I was like, wait, he's really going to give him a note. And he yeah. did. He gave the bartender a note. Huh. Like, my mother says that I can have drinks tonight or whatever, which is, you know, it's horrible. But my point is, is that it's that small of a network. Okay. Like, the bartender's taking a note saying that my mom said, do you, do you get what I'm saying here? Yeah. And everyone's an aunt or an uncle, and everyone has, like, names, like, Aunt Sugar Bowl and Uncle, you know, whatever. It's like, these are, this is real scenario, you know? And I'd also been on Menominee and Oneida, and I knew several tribes. And I just, I find it really hard to believe that, like, two random white dudes just roll on to a reservation, not even knowing anyone. Yeah. Like, not even like, oh, I'm here to see, you know, like, just even if they had given a fake name, then maybe they would have been able to get away with it. But yeah. it's pretty, it's pretty, it's so, it's kind of a, it's, yeah. Yeah, so like, the, so the idea that um, one thing that she says in the clip of the interview that she did with Ted Gunderson, um, she started to say that, uh, you know, once publicity for Johnny's case started to gain some fame again, uh, they would move on to another reservation. So that would, w would that be sort of an impossible scenario? Really, really, like really, really, area? really. It's not like the KOA, uh, you know, campgrounds and you like check in at one and then you go, oh, I'm going to the other network. No, no, no. Actually, really um, pronounced differences between the tribes and rivalry as well. Okay. okay, so an Oneida might say something like, even in jest, um, oh yeah, I saw his car, it's half painted, huh? Well, you know, that's that's how they are in that tribe, you know, like yeah. as a joke. Like they, they, no, no, no. There's no crossover, even if you are Native American. You don't just, you particularly don't go to another reservation. And, uh, no, uh-uh. Okay. No. Even people that I know that are, like, half Apache and half Potawatomi or whatever, it's like, you don't, it's not like that kind of a network. No. Uh-uh. Okay. So if it were possible that he could hide out on some reservation, the only way that it would sort of be possible is that, he, without question, he would have had to know somebody. Yeah, or have relatives. On like already there or yeah like, or maybe like either the person he was with or maybe one of the other boys had an uncle or something or just knew somebody who was already living there like, yeah if the kid he was with had an uncle why didn't he then why wouldn't he just say that to his mom like yeah. um well my friend has an uncle on the reservation so we went and then when things heated up the uncle called, you know, a, somebody else that he knew that was on another reservation. But see, even that is like, I, that's pretty unheard of. Okay. Going across tribal lines like that is, I just don't see it. And then also like, you know, you know, I know that, I know that the, the perception is, is that, you know, the Native Americans are on the dole or, you know, they're receiving all this money or whatever. There's mad poverty on the reservations. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like Indian corn soup and 
deer that they shoot themselves. They tan the hides right out in the, you know, the front yard in the sun. Um, they eat and they'll have feasts when people die. Um, the, the food that they get on the dole is like big cans of like Crisco or what they call, you know, fat or lard okay. for cooking. Um, and they make fry bread, which yeah. they taught me how to make and I can make really well. But I haven't in a long time. Um, so to feed two extra mouths, yeah. I don't know. Those guys that have to be doing some, what would they have to be doing on that reservation to, to earn their keep? Um, what, what are you going to do? There's not, there's, it's not a farmland. It's not, I, I don't know. It's just, there's a lot of things that I question. As far out a story as it is, then I have to question like, well, where did the story come from then? Because I had mentioned Ted Gunderson a little bit and how, um, you know, he was, um, used to be an FBI guy, then yeah. became a private investigator. Yeah. But the problem with Gunderson yeah. was that he was a big believer in, like, the Illuminati. Yeah. And, and anytime and someone just immediately yeah. brings so, that up. Yeah. So it's, it, it, that whole interview is, is bizarre because I, I watched it on YouTube. Oh. And um, clearly, uh, with each of her questions, uh, every answer she has is prepared. Oh. Like, she's written it. And she's reading it off of a card or something. So, and the weird thing about Gunderson, um, the other case that he was, like, his first really big case as a private investigator, um, he was questioning somebody named Helena Stokely and got her to confess that she participated in a ritual killing. Um but the the answers kind of made no sense, and I found out later through reading some stuff that uh, to get her answers, he sort of offered her like yeah. a trip to Hollywood and a part in a movie yeah. and things yeah. like that. So, yeah. like he already has a narrative in mind, and he's guiding the answers, and so that is kind of what I saw happen in that case with Helena Stokely. But I'm wondering. If he could have been doing the same thing with Noreen Gosh, yeah. Johnny's mom. But at the same time, it's like Johnny's mom always has her wits about her, though. Yeah. Like, even in the documentary that just came out, like, four years ago, um, she's, like, the central character in it. And I, I spoke to the guy who directed it. Yeah, right. And he is the first to say, like, yeah, she still has... Totally lucid. All, yeah, she has all her wits about her after all these years. And, you know, she's... Every description I hear about her, she's, you know, she's no shrinking violet. She's a force of nature. She's the strongest woman. So it's it's a weird thing to watch the interview with Ted Gunderson because it's like, okay, here's this guy. But also, I, I don't think she would, like, go along with somebody else's narrative. Well, and that's why I think there's people out there that just do pull hoaxes like this. Yeah. In other words, the people that would, if indeed it was a hoax, that would be playing the part of Johnny and the unnamed friend mm -hmm. in this scenario, showing up in the middle of the night at Lorene's, uh, at her apartment. Yeah. And saying, Mom, it's me. Let me in. First of all, I'd never, I mean, I. would you ever let in two guys in at 2 a.m., you know? This yeah. is what I believe. I believe Noreen 
believes that it was her son. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely what and I, I believe. And I think the mind, too, needs, like, I need this to heal after all these years. I need to believe that my son is still, like, I think you can manufacture um, a way to make it be so. Yeah. Just and so you could heal. Also something you mentioned, too, like, uh, did she ask him to show her, like, yeah. a scar on his leg or something like I that? I know. And, but I, I think, too, like, just trying to put myself in that position, I wonder if, like, would you make a conscious decision to not ask yeah, that? Yeah, right, like, I don't right. Wanna, I don't right. want to see the right. scar. I want like, to believe yeah. this, is believe this is you. Like, yeah. Like, don't show me the scar. I yeah. would, I just feel like I would know my kid anywhere at any time, and I'm sure she thinks the same thing. You know, I just, yeah. it's just, it's just so, I'm torn over that piece of it. I don't feel like she's just, like, making it up because it it wouldn't do her any good to suddenly come out with it in court. In fact, it was a huge backlash for yeah, her. Yeah, exactly. And like to to hang on to it for two years. Yeah. Too. If you don't know what day to day life on a reservation yeah. is like, it it makes sense to somebody not in the know that's like, oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, like, and yeah, I'm telling you, it's just yeah. like you can't. Right. Okay. So people think, oh, it's just sovereign land. There's no cops there. We could hide. Well, there's so many things against that story, like that. I, that I just pointed out. But then on top of that, it's like, wouldn't. So wouldn't you just want to run and just say, Mom, hide me here. Don't tell anyone I'm here. Let me just sleep yeah. here and eat here, and I won't even go out. Like, after you've been, like, b abused and used for that long. If it was indeed a hoax, what did that person have to gain besides just some kind of sick thrill? Well, maybe they had an axe to grind against, maybe against Michael Aquino or the Franklin whole, all of them that were players in that ring. Maybe this is someone who's like... I can come close enough to looking like Johnny, you know, so me and you are going to go get these people in trouble and we're going to go in the middle of the night and we'll just tell her this story and she'll think I really am Johnny and this is our story and so we're not doing it to be sick or hurt her, but, you know, for some reason they had an axe to grind and yeah. we don't know. They could be other um, victims of molestation yeah. that really were like, we, we got to get this word out and we know Johnny's dead or not in the picture. So let's just be him yeah. and his maybe, friend. Maybe that's it. Like maybe it, it could be somebody who knew Johnny, Yeah. but like maybe it was somebody who like knew that he died yeah. when he was 12 years right. old. And it's like, and well, has I, still yeah. been putting up with yeah, like, well, I had, like, it's like, well, I saw this kid get murdered when yeah. he was 12 years old, but I've also seen all these other atrocities happen to all these other kids. Right. Well, I kind of look like Johnny. Maybe yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe something like and, that. And came up with the, with the, with the Indian reservation story because I'm like, no, uh-uh. It's, I'm telling you. Yeah. It's just not. It's just not, it's, it's. It doesn't but, play. But what if, but what if, like, the other 
kid or maybe like one of the other kids that because supposedly one of one of the other things that Noreen says in this interview is that um, when it was like a group of them that escaped together mm. and they had stolen a car. Yeah. So figure there's like four or five of them that just packed into this car together. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe one of them was of, so what, of what's descent. The, okay, or, so what's the closest reservation? Sac and Fox Tribe okay. of Mississippi. Okay, so it would be not, not really that hard to find out who was in charge of the Indian roles on that reservation. You could find out who, you know, might be a spokesperson for that reservation. Um, somehow reach out to them and just say, I'm doing this piece. And, and you know, you can remain anonymous. But, you know, if there was ever somebody that ran away, I mean, how easy would it be to you know, just like kind of lay low on the reservation. And so my daughter is half Native American and she looks it, she's dark skin. She, um, so I was young and I was a single mom in college and her father was a full blood Native American. Okay. So you see that she looks like an Indian, yeah, like Native American, like she's half me Mm-hmm. half white and Irish and half Native American. So she didn't even meet her father as a grown woman. She saw him when she was one year old. Mm-hmm. I didn't stay with him. But the reason I tell you this is because she just met him last summer on the Indian Reservation in Wisconsin. Okay. She had to call. She had to make appointments to, you know... And when she went up there to meet him, the whole tribe came out. Okay. So it, it's like, it's like, everybody like a big knows thing. Every, it's like, oh, yeah. who's here? Like, I'm not yeah. even, like, I can't overstate this enough. Yeah, everybody knows. Oh, did you see her? Yeah. Huh? He's got a new one, huh? There, you know, I saw them last night at the, it's, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. everybody knows everybody's business, yeah. 100%. <laughs> and that's yeah. what goes on all day long. Yeah, so it would be impossible for just two white guys to just show up one day. <laughs> People would be like, who are you? I would think that they would get, you know, rolled, taken advantage of, um, robbed, beaten up. I mean, I'm sorry. It's just they would have to know someone. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't even, like, just come on a reservation and be like, hi, we're here to... You know, do you guys need any help here? People would be like, who are you? Who do you know? Yeah. What do you... One of them would have to be like, my girlfriend lives here. My aunt lives here. My uncle lives here. Or this guy has a friend here. You know, do you know blah, blah, blah. And it's usually mm-hmm. always some kind of nickname or Indian name. I don't know. The story doesn't jive. Um... And I'm with everyone else. I wish it did. But I feel more that the two possibilities would be um, that we did not know. I mean, and I, and I, again, I feel like Noreen would have said this. She would have said the, the guy that Johnny came with in the middle of the night was a Native American. So they were hiding out on... But she didn't. She never said that. 
Right. In fact, they made they went out of their way to say something like they dyed their hair black or something. Yeah. Okay, if I dyed my hair pitch black, would I look like an Indian to you? Do yeah. I have any of the features? Like, I mean, you know. And the other scenario is that, as I said, that that she really did have someone who she thought was her son and um, and another person visit in the middle of the night, but that that person either was a hoaxer or was somebody that was posing as Johnny because he had, you know, an axe to grind. He had his own reasons, like, these guys have got to get, we've got to catch them, and I have the info, and I still want to remain anonymous, so Mm -hmm. I'll go as Johnny. It won't be anything bad, because I know Johnny's already dead, you know, or I think Johnny's dead. Joan brought up a very interesting point. She said maybe... The person who showed up at Noreen's door was not Johnny, but not necessarily just a scam artist either. Maybe it was someone who was also a victim of the pedophile rings and knew firsthand that Johnny had already died. So he posed as Johnny that night to stay anonymous and to try to get the word out about Michael Aquino, about the sex trafficking, about all the people involved. And the whole Indian reservation angle was just another made-up detail. That's the important thing to keep in mind with Johnny's story, is that there are no definitive black or white, one right answer and one wrong answer to everything. It's all a gray area. Even if it was not Johnny who appeared that night, it does not just negate all the claims against Lawrence King, against Michael Aquino, or anyone involved in the pedophilia rings. So we have to look at how to check the claim that Johnny may have been hiding out on a reservation. Joan had suggested to me to look up some of the tribes near Des Moines and go from there. Maybe even take a little summer trip out there. And as you might remember from a few episodes back, I mentioned that the Sac and Fox tribe of the Mississippi is the only federally recognized Indian tribe in Iowa, and that their tribal name is Meskwaki, which translates to Red Earth People. So as for taking a trip out there, I will work on that. You probably wouldn't expect Joan Dillon to have such a wealth of knowledge about living on a reservation, but we need to take her firsthand accounts into consideration when it comes to this part of Johnny's story. The only realistic way he could have been hiding out on any reservation is if he knew somebody there. So who would that be? Could it be the guy that showed up with him that night at Noreen's apartment? Who was that guy anyway? Who was only ever described as he never spoke and Johnny did not introduce him? I'd like us all to think about that. In my next episode, we're going to talk more about Michael Aquino and try to do more separating of fact and fiction. I will be back with episode 12 in two weeks. In the meantime, I encourage you to share this podcast. Feel free to leave a review. Please stay in touch. You can email me at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet me at Sarah E. Dimeo, S-A-R-A-H-E-D-I-M-E-O. Faded Out is on Facebook. The URL is facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. Thanks go out to Joan Dillon for letting me come on site to her office at WRCH to record. Thank you for joining us for episode 11. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you in two weeks.